Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Audacious Ask. Have you noticed that children are far more free in their ability to ask than we grown-ups are? They ask questions for just about everything they are needing, thinking, or wanting. What if we dusted off our childlike inquisitiveness and began asking God to do great and mighty things in this day and in this age for His glory and our joy? Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I had a completely different study this week. I know I've said that many times, but uh, I was so moved by last week's message. I think it was called The Revolutionary. Yeah, The Revolutionary. And there was that scene of Jonadab in the end of Jehu and his chariot reaching down his hand and basically saying, is your heart, the way my heart is towards you is your heart towards me. Remember, Jehu has come to bring judgment on Israel and Jonadab. Am I getting his name right? I'm not looking at it. I know, I want to say it was Nadab, so Jonadab. Uh, He says it is. And Jehu reaches down his hand and takes him up into his chariot. And it's a picture of those that are humble and agreeable with the judge, that the judge extends an arm of mercy out and puts us behind him in the time of judgment. And we actually ride in his chariot. There's only two options. You're either in the chariot or you're under the wheels of the chariot being trounced. Jezebel was trounced by under the wheels of the chariot. Same chariot, but different position. And our position as Christians is secure in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I was so moved by that last week, I could not get it out of my heart and my mind all throughout the week, so I felt like I studied that. My message for this week was called The Furious Chariot. That was my message for this whole week. I had a whole other dimension of study. I did not feel I had the time to actually wrap it up, but uh, I was... Last week's message was rather hefty. I don't know how well you guys did through it, but uh, it was rather hefty for me. And anytime you begin to meditate upon judgments, it does a weird purifying work. I shouldn't say weird, healthy, but it is an odd purifying work that very few things in life can work. When you study hell, who wants to study hell? But when you study the lake of fire, I tell you what, it gets you honest real quick when you know that liars go there. And so suddenly you're like, you know what? (laughs) I don't think that lying's a very good business. And so it has a way of altering the course of your life when you stare square into the realities of truth, who God is, his heart towards sin. You know, he considers it so intensely that this is where he sends those that participate in it. Anything that is against his nature, there. And so last week I was talking about the books. You know, there's these books that are opened and men are judged out of these books by what they've done, everything they've ever said, everything they've ever thought. It's like they're judged by what's in these books. And I was likening those books to the, books, the book of the law, that we are held accountable for every deed done in these bodies. And yet we are found wanting and lacking in every single one of us by the condemnation, the clear word of the righteous law, we are judged and found guilty, every single one of us in here. And so if there wasn't the presence of another book, and that's what's so amazing in the book of Revelation when it says, and then another book was brought out. It was called the book of life. And anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. But there's this other book, and that other book is Jesus He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no hope outside of him. And so this concept of being found in Christ is of such critical importance. And so one of the things you'll see if you study it, I'm not going to give a message on it, I'll just give you a hint and then you guys can follow the rabbit trails. But the term blot or blotted, sort of a funny word and maybe, you know, I I always think of an ink pen sort of going, you know, just all over the place, Uh uh-oh, a big blot. And, but this term is used, it's like erase, or our modern term would be delete. It's like, eesh. Uh, And so there seems to be this book, this book of life. And basically, long and short, if you study it in scripture, there's two options for the word blot. Either your sins are going to be blotted out, 
by the blood of Jesus, or you will be blotted out. Gulp. There's only two options. Something's being blotted. There is a chariot, and that chariot, is its wheels are churning. However, you will be either under the wheels of its judgment, or you will be inside that chariot with the judge. And I, for one, want to lead us in saying, my heart is like yours unto me. I want you. I need you. I love you. I just want you. I do not want to be against you. I want to be for you. Please, Lord Jesus, extend that hand of mercy towards us, the church of Jesus Christ. He has. That's what the cross is. It is the extension of the hand of mercy. He says, will you take it? And this is the season. This is the opportunity of Jonadab does not accept that. Well, guess who's under the wheels of the chariot? If his heart is not right when Jehu shows up, guess what? He's under the wheels just as Jezebel was. So I'm not supposed to be giving that message this week. The audacious ask. I almost titled this message The Ask. Sounds like some business maneuver, doesn't it? It's like if you were in some sales class, uh, they would teach you about how to make the pitch and, and close the deal. There's sometimes the term is to make the ask, where you're going to, in, in Christian circles, that's a very common thing, where you're seeking donations and you're sort of giving your vision for what you're doing and then you make the ask. Uh, that's awkward. Uh, it's funny, anytime you deal with money, it's just plain awkward. And so there's some people that are just really good with the ask. I don't know that I'm very good with the ask. I think I stink at the ask, uh, to be honest. I probably need some courses. This isn't about that, and we're not trying to raise money today. (laughs) The audacious ask. This is a different sort of ask. This is what the Bible delineates in Scripture, and it's a command. We are all supposed to ask, not just ask anyone anything, We are supposed to ask the Heavenly Father. It's a really strange thing to think of a command in Scripture saying, ask. How many of you have ever ever thought of it being a command? I don't know that most of us would categorize it that way. Have you done your asking today? Are you asking? Did you ask? It's like, that's our opportunity. We can ask if we want. It's a good suggestion. If you don't ask, you don't get. It's a strange thought. You need to ask. One of the most important spiritual disciplines is asking, and yet for most of us, and I don't know in other countries, I only grew up in one country. I grew up in America. And I know in America, it is not appropriate to ask, except for in certain frameworks, okay? In certain situations, like for instance, you're at a restaurant and you want to order a hamburger, it's okay to say, could I have a cheeseburger? Okay, that's okay. And you could say, oh, and by the way, could you add onion to it? And no, no one's going to say, that is so rude. <laughs> Within a certain framework of our American decorum, it is perfectly fine to ask. But there's other things that I shouldn't ask of you. Otherwise, I would be overextending the bounds of civility, of my expectations of you, and be putting you in an awkward position. Just like there's personal space. You don't <laughs> violate that. And the same is true with this concept of ask. And yet, if you study Scripture... What we are being asked to ask violates our concepts of personal space. It's like, I can't do that. That's presuming upon God. How many of us have even said that? It's like, well, I mean, I don't want to presume upon God. And God's like, hey, hey, I'm asking you to. You're not asking. I'm not hearing it. Well, I don't want to be rude, God. I don't want to offend you. It's going to be far more offensive to disobey him and disregard him. Isn't that a fascinating thought? So this is the audacious ask. The ask. Ask and it shall be given you. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. There's a Direct parallel. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. 
Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. So when you study prayer in scripture, you have to get close and brush up against the ask. It's impossible not to. And it is a little awkward for us. But I think for most of us that have been around the scriptures long enough, we know that we're supposed to be doing this. And I don't think there's a lot of maybe contention in this room saying, I just really don't agree with those scriptures, Eric. I don't think we should ask. I think it's, we just have to begin to get acclimated to the fact that we must ask. We must. Now, there's a way that we're supposed to be asking, and there's certain things we're supposed to be asking for, and scripture delineates these things. We are supposed to be asking a certain way. And when we ask, we need to be asking for things within a certain framework. You ever seen the word whatsoever in scripture? Whatsoever is a big word. And so when it says, ask whatsoever you will, don't you get a little uncomfortable with that? Because you can just see that person going, huh, really? And they go out and start asking for the Lamborghini. They ask that they could float. They ask that they could lose, you know, 300 pounds overnight. And as a result, all of us on the outside are like, that isn't what it means. And someone could say to you, how do you know? It just seems like that's an abuse and a twisting. And I would say, you're right, it is. You see, there's two different mediums through which you can do your praying. Out of the flesh, which is self-serving for your agenda and your designs. And the other is out of the spirit. It says that Jesus did nothing but what his father was doing and spoke nothing but what his father was speaking, which means Jesus' prayers even would have been the prayers of the father. So everything that Jesus did was in full concert with what we could call in scripture the spirit of God. He was in conjunction or in alignment with God's spirit. And so, so it is true with us. When we're asking, we need to ask in accordance with what Scripture says, God's will. Well, what's God's will? Well, it's that which is directed by the Spirit of God. It's always in agreement with the Word of God because it's taken from the Word of God. But we pray in accordance with God's will. In the Old Testament, we have a picture of the Israelites in the wilderness. And then you have the land of promise out here. Land of promise, there's a, there's a barrier in between called the Jordan River. There's a whole bunch of evil empires over there. And these Israelites are called to take that land. And it basically says, wheresoever your foot shall tread, that I will give you. And in the Old Testament, the picture that we have of the ask is what we could call take, go. And so there's something that's there, but it needs to be grabbed a hold of. It's already given. It just needs to be taken. However, they're given a very specific plot of land that they are to go after. It's not just random. It's not just any parcel of land, like they're supposed to head off to Saudi Arabia or maybe to Greece. The promise isn't there. The promised land. This is the land where the promise is. This territory is promised. And so when you ask in that territory of promise, you will guaranteed receive. And that is very critical in understanding the ask. We're not just asking for anything. We're asking within the framework of what Christ has accomplished, purchased, and given. But whatsoever within that territory that God is directing us into, because we are being taken out of Egypt through the wilderness and then given a promise in Christ Jesus, And when we ask, or wheresoever our foot shall tread in that territory, it will be given. And so, as a result, there is a framework to how we ask. It isn't just random. It isn't just whatever goes through your brain. Uh, God, could this chair just go straight up into the air and crash into the ceiling and get stuck there? You You could say, well, that is whatsoever. Yeah, but that isn't the framework of what God does on earth. There is no reason for that. It is random. It is of no value. And all it does is create confusion in the body of Christ. If we were just doing random acts of supernatural magnificence, 
God must receive glory, which means that which we ask must be directed by him to show him. And so whatever we are doing in our asking, it ultimately must have a bigger purpose than our own comfort, our own agenda. It must be the spirit of God for his glory, for his honor, for his praise. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Now the reason I made all that we ask big, hopefully that makes sense in light of what we're having a discussion on, I know it says or think, and I'm not against that, and we could have a whole other message on what we think, and that we need to be thinking a lot bigger than we are already thinking about God. Our thoughts of God are very small compared to who he actually is. But what I want to emphasize in this is that it says, now unto him, speaking of God, that is able to do exceeding abundantly. So that's not just exceeding beyond what we could ask or think, but exceeding abundantly. It just sort of combines them into some big explosive word to say so far beyond. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask. So when you learn to ask, and you could even be asking grand things, God, could this seems to be what you purchased on the cross. I'm going after it. And God smiles and says, good for you. And then no matter what you're thinking of asking for, God can and will do exceeding abundantly beyond that. How big is our God? He's a lot bigger than we can comprehend this morning. In other words, whatever I'm going to present today stinks next to who God really is. I feel so smallish in my ability to lead you to the grandness of God Almighty. Who are we asking? When we are asking, we're not just asking our neighbor. We're not just asking someone down the street. We're not asking some impersonal force. We're asking someone that the Bible defines very clearly. Jehovah, he's personal. We are asking God. We are praying to a father. The one who asks us to ask and promises that he will answer if we do ask. That's who we're asking. Think about this. We are asking the one who asks us to ask. You know that when you know that you're asking the one who's asked you to ask, you have a lot more assurance that when you ask, he's going to answer? The one who asks us to ask and promises that he will answer if we do ask. That's who we're asking. Now, it is possible at this stage in our discussion, if you don't know who this God is, who he's revealed as in Scripture, that you could have a conclusion that he is capricious. In other words, that he says, oh yeah, ask me, ask me. Oh yeah, I'll give it to you, sure. But he's not trustworthy. In other words, is God capricious? Is he sort of playing with us? Is he having fun and poking around saying, yeah, watch this, angels. Yeah, I'm giving them this promise, and we'll see how they handle it. Oh, they're asking, they're asking. All right, now watch this. Yeah, I won't answer. Uh-huh, now they're disillusioned. Got them. Uh, oh, excellent plan. This isn't God. This isn't how he functions. God's thoughts are not confused. He's not one way towards someone and another way towards someone else. He's the same. He is the same always. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He is I am. We don't change him. He is who he is. And so... Who are we asking? We're asking one who cannot change. We're asking one who is, and when he speaks, he means it. And this very one has given us promises. You know that God didn't need to give us promises? He didn't need to give the Israelites a promised land. He could have just said, you know, I'm sick and tired of you guys, and destroy them. What do you think he could have done with us a long time ago? He didn't even need to give us the cross. Before we even had breath, he could have decided, oh, yeah, yeah, these guys are going to sin too. Let's just get rid of this whole thing known as the human race. But for some reason, God so loved the world. I can't always comprehend that either, but it's truth. And this God has given us promise. He didn't have to. But when he gave us a promise, he's bound by his very nature and character to back it up. And then this God who has given us promises, now ask. You see this promise I've given you? Yeah, now ask. And if you ask, believing, in faith, I will do it. It's that simple. I will do it. Now, for those of you that are in here right now and you have your perplexing issues, 
Like, for instance, I've tried that, Eric. I've done that before. I just can't be set up for disillusionment again. Ellerslie students know this illustration very, very well. Fact, faith, experience. Three characters, they're all supposed to walk a ridgepole of a barn. So I always picture them in a line. The barn has like a razor-sharp edge roof to it. No one can actually walk it. It's impossible. But fact gets out there and just walks it. You see, fact is another word for truth. Two plus two equals four. Whether you like it or not, it's not how you feel about it. It just is. It is true. It's a fact. And billions of years from now, that will not change. If you get two things over here and stick two things with it and jumble it up into two plus two, what do you get? Every single time from all history past to all history future, it'll always be the same conclusion. That's the way God is. He doesn't change. He doesn't alter. So when he declares and says two plus two equals four, your faith and my promises equal an answer. That will never alter. That's fact. So faith is the second character. See, fact can walk the ridgepole with perfect balance, and we're all just awestruck. Wow, he can do it. But faith is us. And if we keep our eyes focused on the fact and we believe it, we keep our balance. And we end up pulling off the impossible in this life on this earth. However, life isn't that easy. Because there's a third character known as experience, and we could call it emotion, too. And someone could say to you, how do you feel about two plus two? And some of you in here could go, you know what? I just don't feel like it equals four. You know, that's how many of us say, you know, it just feels more like a five should come out of two and two. And so as a result, what we do is we turn around and we consult emotion or feeling instead of fact. And as a result, we lose our balance and we keep falling off the roof. And some of your experiences can testify to the fact that, you know, God didn't seem to come through. God seemed to ignore me in this situation. I tried prayer. It didn't didn't come through for me. It didn't work. God always works. Without exception, he works. So the problem is not with God. It's with you. And so the enemy works overtime to try and get us to consult experience instead of fact. But I'm here to tell you that God is not the problem. God is the only solution that we have. So if your emotion, your experience is clouding you, even as I'm saying this, that God will come through, God always comes through, God cannot help but come through, he is our savior, and it says that he ever lives to make intercession for us and that he will save us to the uttermost. He doesn't just save a little of us. He doesn't just save part of us that come to him by faith and the rest of us is like, you know what, I'm busy. I can't just do this for everyone for whatever reason and how his capacity is such that he can do it for all that will call upon his name. That's just fact. That's the way it works. So our confidence must be in him. Who are we asking? We're asking one who cannot fail us. We're asking one who will prove faithful. He is faithful and true. Boy, now that's a rock you can build your life around and upon. Matthew 7, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, listen to this, How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? He is not capricious. That's what it says in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. God is not capricious. He's not playing games. He's a good father. And here you are, evil fathers, and you know how to take care of your children. How much more does the perfect father know how to take care of his children? And who is the perfect father? He's asking us to ask. He says, ask seek, knock, it will be done. This is the word of God which cannot lie. It says it. I do not care what your experience is bellowing right now. All I care about is what the word of God states. The word of God is right. It's accurate. It's true. It's without flaw. It's like silver purified seven times over. It is without error. It is flawless. It bears the very nature of God. And as a result, we trust it. 
We build our life around it, and it will prove faithful even in your experience. God is not looking to have your experience constantly fall off the ridgepole and have faith go, I'm just blindly trusting fact. You see, you keep getting two and two, and you put them together, and if every time you do it, it you keep counting five, you're like, you know what? Something's wrong with this fact. However, if you say two plus two equals four, I don't care what they say. I believe it because God says it. You know what? You get two and you get two and you put them together and you count them. Yeah, sure enough, it does equal four. And it will equal four in your life. When God says, you trust me, you put your confidence in me, this is the result. And we say, but God, I've never seen that in my generation. He says, are you gonna follow your generation and their experience or are you gonna follow me and my word? We say, I'm gonna choose to follow you. And what happens in your generation? One of you stands up and believes, just one, and refuses to turn around and consult experience, refuses to turn around and and, and consult the emotion of a generation, and believes. What's gonna happen in that generation? Well, the fact will be proclaimed. God will once again be revealed as truthful in that generation, in and through your obedience. Why can we ask? So, Who are we asking? Well, that's God, Jehovah, who cannot change. Why can we ask? Doesn't it feel a little presumptuous to think that we could approach the God of the universe? We, us sinful creatures, who have no business being in a holy presence, what right do we have to ask anything? Who are we to ask? We don't have that ability, that position, do we? He has made a way under the throne of grace where the asking is made and the answers are found. We don't have any right in and of ourselves, but a right unto that throne has been made in and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, in and through his atonement, in and through the propitiation that was gained in his blood. He has made an avenue for sinful men and women like ourselves to be clothed in his righteousness So we are given a righteousness that is not our own to afford us entry and access into the throne room of grace. And it says, come boldly. Come boldly. I've given you the clothing. I've given you the cover so that you can enter and that you can obtain mercy and grace for help in time of need. We have access because of Jesus Christ. Who are we asking? Well, we're asking a God who cannot lie, who cannot change, and who wants to answer. Well, then why can we ask? Because Jesus has given up his life. He shed his blood. He has given us the clothing. He's given us an access. He has broken down the middle wall of partition and given us an access into that very throne room of grace where the asking can be made and where the answers are found. We have access. So he's not just capriciously saying, oh yeah, go ahead, ask. He's like, can't hear you, you sinful wretch. God has made a way for us to ask. Yes, we are sinful. Yes, we have no right in and of ourselves. But he has rights and he has access and our faith in him has brought us near. Because we have entered into a carrying device, a transportation device. And we have been brought near where Jesus is, we are. And he is at the right hand of the Father. And he's brought us right there. And he says, now ask. Now ask. We're like, how did I get here? Well, by faith, you trusted in me. And this was the work I've done for you. I have given you an avenue into the very throne of grace where you will be in the chariot as opposed to under its furious judgment wheels in the end. I have given you access unto my very person. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 10. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You're like, I don't feel worthy of asking. What does the word of God say? It doesn't say you are worthy. It says he is worthy, but he has made a way. 
And in that way, you are brought near, so enter in with a full assurance. His blood is your merit. His blood is your plea. You don't come with your pockets full of good deeds, saying, oh God, and I did this too. Can I stay? Can I now ask something? Can I make a trade? I do this righteous deed, and then I trade you out an answer? That isn't how it works. Our access is based on his merit, his virtue, his work on the cross, not our work. And we are told, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. The one that promised will back up his promise. He has promised. He has made a way for you. So enter in boldly. Come on. His blood has done it. Believe. And if you do, enter in boldly. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. What is your position? You see, when we believe in Christ, we are positioned in him. When we turn, just like Jonadab turned unto Jehu, and Jehu stopped his chariot, that chariot of judgment, and he leans down, he says, is, my, is your heart towards me the way my heart is towards you? And he says, it is. And he brings him up into the chariot. We have encountered God's grace in such a way where we have come to the cross and we said, yes, what you have, I'm on your side. Your judgment against the sin in my life is correct. And I agree with you. Trounce it under the wheels of the chariot and we are secured and safe and saved even though our sin is judged at that cross. We are in Christ. And being in Christ, when he went to the cross, we went to the cross, and our old man is crucified. Our old life is disposed of. When he was buried, we were buried. And our old life, our old man is no more seen, no more visible. And when he rose again, we are in him. Therefore, we rose again into newness of life in Christ Jesus. And when he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, where did we go? We're in him. Therefore, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then what does it say about the promises of God? Because you could say, well, I don't feel like I should have any access to those promises. I mean, who am I? I'm not of the lineage of Abraham. I don't have any Hebrew blood in me. I don't have any right to the promises. It says you do in Jesus Christ. You believed, therefore you are in him. And if you are in him, you have access into the throne room of grace. You are where he is. And if you are in him, did you know what that means? That means all the promises of God in him, in Jesus, are yes. And in him, amen. What's your location? What's your position? You know what that means? The answers are already given. You're like, God, what about this promise? He goes, yes. And the spirit of God goes, amen. Yes and amen, even before you ask. Your position has given you access. So who are we asking? We're asking Jehovah who cannot change. Same yesterday and today and forever. He is not going to alter his promises. He's not going to alter the arrangement. He says this is how you gain access. Through faith in Jesus Christ. That's not going anywhere. This is stable. And so even though this, these words were stated 2,000 years ago, it's still true today. And then, why do we have confidence to ask? Well, because we're in him. We have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And all the promises of God are yes to us. And God says, <clears throat> ask. Please, ask. Don't just hear a message like this. Ask. How can we be assured he will answer? Interesting question. Now, hopefully that's been answered even by the fact that we got to this question the way we did. But here's the answer. Because he has promised and he cannot lie. Doesn't that sound, that's just the way a little child could reason through it. Can God lie? No. And so is God's word, in fact, the word of God? Yes. Well, so if God cannot lie and the word of God is the word of God, doesn't it make sense that the word of God cannot lie? Yeah, it does. The word of God cannot lie. And the word of God, any promise in the word of God that is given to us as the saints of God, guess what? It is a promise given by God who cannot lie. Can we have assurance? You better believe it, we can. That's the key to Christianity. It's called faith. But faith has been marginalized in our generation. The church of Jesus Christ today is celebrating doubt as if it's the chief virtue of the church. 
hip doubt, where we can, we're considered cool and politically correct if we could be a Christian, but doubt the whole system and the whole framework. Have a little hip pocket version of the Da Vinci Code that we carry around with us. It's become an absolute joke within Christianity. We are called believers. We believe the record. What God has stated is God's word, and God cannot lie, so therefore we have full assurance. God cannot lie, and he's promised. It is impossible for God to lie. It actually says in Hebrews 6, it was, it was impossible for God to lie. He's reasoning through an argument. Same statement. I could give you all sorts of scriptures to make the same statement. All throughout the Bible. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. That's Abraham. Speaking of Abraham. What was the definition of his faith in being fully persuaded that what he had promised, what God had promised, God was able also to perform? That's just good old little child logic. That's how it works. Well, God promised. Could you imagine you know, a little child coming up to us and saying, why don't you believe, Daddy? It's like, well, you know, it's complicated, little one. You know, there's things that, you know, little kids can easily believe, but us adults, you know, we mature out of that and we get a little smarter. Well, can God lie? Well, that's a complicated thing. Isn't the word of God the word of God like you always told me? And if it is the word of God, then it cannot lie. And doesn't God say in his word that this is a fact? Well, yeah, but, but it's complicated. No, it's not complicated. It's actually very, very simple. And even a little child can grasp it. But we, us mature adults, have made it very complicated to try and excuse our souls from being firm believers in the actual words of Scripture. He is faithful that promised. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, listen to this line, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Are you judging him faithful who has promised? Oh, he's faithful. That means he will perform. He will come through. We can have absolute full assurance without any wobbly knees. Why would you wobble when you're talking about God? He will come through. He is who he is. He's the I am that I am, he says. That's his proper name. It's as if his name is, I cannot help but be faithful. I am who I am. I will always be who I am. I never change. I will never alter. So when you catch a vision in the word of God for who I am, you know that I still am that today. I am, he says, and it's his proper name. So when you ask, how should you ask? So some of you have been brought to the point, like, okay, I need to do more asking. I have been really messing up on the asking side of things. You need to get over this whole thing about asking and being ashamed of asking, and you need to begin to ask. You need to begin to study the promises of God and begin to go after them in your soul. Go after them in the church. Go after them in your families, in the development of your children. So when you ask, how should you ask? The two ingredients that please God. There seems to be a couple of things in Scripture that God hallmarks. Number one, faith is very critical in the asking. You can study this out in those those scriptures about asking, that you have to have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is what causes God to smile. It seems to unlock the treasure chest of God. When we come with the key of faith, it's like, oh, it opens. It's like, I told you it would. You see, you must believe That God is who he says he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's the basis of faith. Oh, yeah, God is. Oh, yeah, God's faithful. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, if I go after him, he will prove to be a rewarder when I do. He's not capricious. So faith that God is sure to answer and delights to answer. Are you sure that God will answer and that he delights to answer? If you know that, I tell you what, you're a dangerous weapon on planet Earth. But that's not the only thing, because I'd say that there are many of us in here that are doing number one on this list. And I would say, if I could commend the body of Christ, you know how like in the book of Revelation, each of the churches, like I have, uh, you know, this is wonderful, but I have this against you. This could be one of those moments where I could imagine God saying, 
You know, and you have faith that God is sure to answer and delights to answer. But I have this against you. You are not making, this is number two, God-sized requests. They are not audacious requests that make me smile. They are little piddly, measly little requests that fall within your comfort zones. But they are not born of my spirit. You know what God wants to do in this generation? Something exceedingly abundantly beyond all you could ask or think. And what are our little requests? Our little requests are well within the bounds of what we could ask or think. Think about it. Many of us in here have failed to have God-sized requests. Now, I know this is a funny way to indict the church. It's like, how can you be guilty of not making big enough requests? What I'm saying to us today is not for us to feel guilty. It's to be inspired. It's to have our faith grow to say, let's start asking in accordance with a God who is limitless. You see, it's still within the framework of promise. I'm not talking about taking Japan. I'm talking about taking the land of promise. There's 31 hostile empires in the land of promise, and God says, do you believe I can take them all down? Well, you know what? I've never seen this one ever go down. You know, how many of us guys, we look around and like every single guy seems to struggle with lust. You know how tired I am of that in this generation? Sick and tired of this mountain of giants here in the land of promise when everyone says, well, yeah, I mean, God can do this and he can get a guy to go to church, but he can't get the lust out of him. What? What Bible are you reading? God can do what God does. And God saves us to the uttermost. There is no foul thing that remains in God. We walk in the light as he is in the light. He has power to deliver. Do we believe it? Are our requests God-sized or are they man-sized? I think most of us, and that's why I say, this is what God may have against us. We are living at a man level with man thoughts and man vision. We have limited God, not intentionally, but we've limited God to what we believe he could do in our generation based on books that we've read in the past. But God is not limited to any story in the past. He is God who can part a Red Sea any moment, who can feed a nation from heaven. Shoes don't wear out for 40 years? That would be quite the miserable shoe company. Uh, Could you imagine you sell one shoe and then it never wears out. It's like they made light bulbs to go out after a period of time. I mean, what kind of business is this? God can do whatever God wants to do that fits within the framework of his nature. I remember asking someone, can God lie? And they said, well, God could lie, I guess. He can do anything. Well, he could do anything. I like the sound of that. That sounds complimentary to God, but he can't violate his nature. It says in scripture over and over, the strength of Israel will not lie cannot lie. God will never violate his nature. He is truth. So he can't be lie at the same time. And so we can know our God and then pray in accordance with who he is. So here's the second ingredient. God-sized requests. Audacious requests that make God smile. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. So the first ingredient we know is faith. You must believe. When you're praying, if you do not believe, and the concept for for believe is the same as faith. It's like the action of faith. But it's the same concept. Pistos instead of pistis. It's the same word in the Greek. We translate it as faith for the noun, and then we have the action or the verb being believe. But it's the same word. So basically it's saying, in all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, with faith you shall receive. So we must know that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Otherwise, our prayers do not have effect. Two ingredients. But the second ingredient is the one I want to focus on. The pattern of the ask in the Old Testament. It's interesting because God shows us certain stories in the Old Testament and he zooms in. A lot of times we just get history and it's like this guy you know, lived this many years and died and was buried with his fathers. And it skips an entire life. And then other stories, God will zoom in with his camera lens and just stop. And we're like, why are we looking at this? He says, just watch. Trust me, believe me, I would not put this scene in if it didn't matter to you. And we're like, now what does this have to do with anything? It has a lot to do with your life today. And I could give you so many illustrations throughout the Old Testament and say, what does that have to do with anything? 
And then we could make that into a great sermon just right there. I love seeing, we call them Christophanies, pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. And so in this picture, I'm not going to go into great detail. I'm going to keep it very simple, and I'm just going to show you the pattern of the ask. But we could call this the audacious ask. Elijah's parting. Elijah actually never died a mortal death, but he's not here anymore. He was carried up to heaven in a whirlwind, in a chariot of fire. Yeah, uh-huh, it happened. And I believe it, by the way. I do. So this is Elijah's parting. Elijah, before he departed, was told by God to anoint Elisha as the prophet in his room. So as a result, whatever role he was playing in Israel, whatever jurisdiction he was given spiritually, he gave that to Elisha. But until he parted, Elisha didn't receive that job description. And so Elisha left everything and basically followed Elijah around. And word began to get around that Elijah was going to depart. And all the prophets knew it. It's really interesting. Just to study the story, all the prophets knew it. They didn't know when, but they knew it was coming. And at every turn, Elijah would actually tell Elisha, don't worry, I'm not leaving you right now. He's like, I need to go over into this village. And Elisha, you could sort of say, are you, is this when you're like, and Elijah's like, no, I will return. All right. Don't just leave me here, okay, with your job description. Make sure I have everything I need to perform it. Okay, so there is a chief prophet who is preparing to depart. And so here's the scene. I'm just going to read it out of scripture for you. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? So it's like everyone seems to be up to to know it, that God's going to take Elijah today. And listen to Elisha's response. And he answered, Yeah, I know it. Can't you see? He's like, Would you guys be quiet? I don't want to think about that today. Yeah, I know it. Hold you your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Terry, I pray thee, hear, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. So, now remember, Jericho was the first uh, occupied territory in the land of promise that the Israelites came against. Remember the walls of Jericho, they marched around it. So we're right by the Jordan, okay? Now, Elijah said, I'm called to Jordan. And he said, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they two went on. So you can just sort of see it. Elisha's like, where, where, aren't you, I know it's today, but where, where are you going next? And so the two are going together. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they, stood, and they too stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, this way and that way, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass... When they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, here's the key moment. Elisha, the, Elijah, the chief prophet, says to Elisha, the newbie, says, ask. It's not an interesting statement. Ask. Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, now by the way, this is one of the most incredible answers to any question or opportunity that I've ever heard. You know, we're always impressed with Solomon asking for wisdom. This blows away Solomon's request. I love this answer. This is one of the most profound answers, and I am found when I measure my own soul next to Elisha's response that I am not yet ready for this day because I would ask something so diddly squat next to what Elisha asked for. I'm not thinking big enough. I'm not living big enough. My expectations of God are too small. Now, if you're looking at the life of Elijah... And you were to say, what measure of the Spirit of God did he have? You know, if if there was a a measure of the Spirit of God from zero to a hundred, how much does Elijah have? Well, how many of you are going to feel sort of awkward? He has the full package. The guy calls down fire from heaven, not just once, by the way, but he actually called down fire from heaven on multiple occasions. This guy raised the dead to life. This guy prayed, and the heavens were sealed for three over three years from any rain. And then he prayed again, and it rained again. Who is this guy? What measure of the Spirit of God does he have? We say, oh, an awful lot. So look at this. Ask what I shall do for thee. 
So what are you thinking of in this moment? Now, don't read on. Some of you are already peeking and trying to cheat and figure out what he asked. And you're like, well, I think I would ask. I know how some of you work. So don't read ahead. I'm asking you to pause for a second. The mighty Elijah, who seems to be able to pull off anything, has just said to you, ask. What do you need? What equipment do you need for your job? You know I'm leaving. What do you need? Ask. Ask. What are you going to ask for? Don't you feel embarrassed about what's going through your mind? It's like, well, let's see. If I could just have enough money to make it through this month, then I might be stable to be in position to be more, a more effective prophet next month. This is the way most of us think. We are very smallish, and we're very narrow, and we're very myopic, which means short-sighted, in our view. So we're only thinking about today, tomorrow. We don't realize the grandness of God. We don't see his ability of what he's able to do. So let's, let's look at this. Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. Now most of us would have to admit, I don't know that there's enough spirit to do double in another prophet. I wouldn't even know that there could be double of something. I think Elijah's maxed it out. I don't know that this is possible. That's what goes through my mind when I hear it. Look at what goes through Elijah's mind. And he said, thou hast asked a hard thing. (laughs) But there's something about this request that pleases God. You have asked a hard thing. I think we need to start asking harder things. I think we need to begin to grow up and rise up to a greater level of expectancy from our God. And he said, thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, listen to the stipulation. If thou see me when I am taken away from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. So the stipulation seems to be when Elijah is taken, if Elisha sees it, that is a symbol that he has received what he asked. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire. And parted them both asunder. So now they're divided. So I guess Elijah's over there and now Elisha's over here. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Key line. And Elisha saw it. That's the stipulation. Elisha asked a hard thing. And guess what? What did God answer? You got it. He just asked for a double portion of what Elijah had. You know that we're not exactly sure what that means practically, but we can read their their accounts. And Elisha was one powerful guy on planet Earth. It's interesting because Elijah gets all the notoriety. I'm not exactly sure if that's just because he's mentioned in James 5. And it's just like, well, he's the big dog. But Elisha had a double portion of the spirit that Elijah had. At one moment, he was surrounded by an entire Syrian army. It was just him and his servant. And he said, open my servant's eyes. And he saw a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. Elisha didn't even tremble, didn't even fear even a a farthing, knowing God's in control. And in one moment, he spoke, and all the Syrian army was made blind. The entire army made blind by a simple statement of a prophet. Whoa! You know that if you count up Elijah's miracles and Elisha's, did you know that Elisha had exactly... Double minus one, the miracles, when he died. And if you know the story of Elisha, he died, was buried, and then some guys are running around with a dead body, and they're trying to figure out where to put it. And so they dumped it in a tomb, which just happened to be Elijah's, and he landed on Elisha's bones, and the man popped back to life. (laughs) And God was like, double! And Elisha saw it, and he cried, listen to this line, it's going to be very important as we go forward. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. 
And when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Do you remember the apostles? Do you remember the ascension of Jesus Christ in a whirlwind? They saw it. And the mantle of that mighty prophet fell to this earth. And those apostles, not just one prophet, but the apostles, known as the body of Christ, picked up that mantle and strike the waters of the Jordan and enter into the land of promise. Wow. This is no small thing. But what is the beginnings of this? It's the hard ask. It's the audacious ask. Do you know that the one that is ascended has what you need? Everything you will need to be equipped for your job on this earth. What is fluttered down? I always picture the mantle just going, sort of like if it was a movie scene. Elisha's like, my father, my father. And then there's all this smoke and whirlwind and then he backs up and he's like tears and he's choking up and then he sees it through the fog. There's a mantle and it lands. Steve Rosen movie score behind it. And he comes up And he looks at it, he picks it up, dusts it off, swings it around his shoulders, and begins to walk. Isn't that good? (laughs) Now, Elisha has lived quite a life, and he has a parting. This is a very interesting thing, because the two great scriptures to deal with the ask, the pattern of the ask in the Old Testament, have to do with the parting of Elijah and the parting of Elisha. It really is extraordinary. But the prophet is departing. Do you ask? So this is a very fascinating story. Let me just get into it and I'll try and fill in the gaps. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face. And said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Does that sound familiar? That's a quotation from history. That is the very quote that Elisha himself said when Elijah was ascending. Now, Joash is coming in at the parting of Elisha. And what he remembers, the thing that Joash knows, is that Elisha received a double portion at that parting. So guess who shows up at the parting? A king. However, this king isn't the healthiest of kings. And so you have to question his motives here. However, it is a tender scene. It is a beautiful scene, but it's a hard one to know how to relate with because Joash was not a healthy man. But he wants something. You see, Elisha had something. He had it his entire life, but it was genuine. He knew how to ask. He knew how to ask in accordance with the grandness of God. Now, just watch how this scene plays out because in this scene, we have an ask, but it's a different sort of ask. Joash is coming in and in a sense saying, I want the spirit that was upon Elisha. He's even mimicking the very words of Elisha in this situation. He's repeating a very historic scene in Israel's history, and he's the one that has access to this dying prophet. So he said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows, and he said, unto the, said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow, and he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. And then Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Ephek, till thou hast consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows, and he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground, and he smote three times. Instead, now some of you know this story. Some of you recollect it as I'm going through it. But there's something that's taking place here. Joash knows that Elisha has something. And he wants it. And that could be a pure desire. I don't know how to judge Joash's intent here. All I know is that he was not a healthy king. And that's God's record on the account. So I'm not exactly sure how to relate to his heart All I know is he's being tested in this moment, the same way Elisha was way back in the day. Basically, he's saying, ask. God's saying, ask. You need equipment to be the king of Israel, Joash. Ask. And so he's being tested. 
And so Elisha is walking him through a process very similar to the way Elijah walked Elisha through the process. There's a testing of those that will follow, those that will have the inheritance, those that will carry on the lineage. He says, take these arrows and strike the ground with them. Now, if you were given a pile of arrows at the parting of Elisha, which, by the way, is a very significant thing, in your mind, you might be like Joash saying, I want to be at that parting. I may catch the mantle. I need what that one has. It could even be a genuine desire. I want what Elijah had. I want what Elisha has. What's my motive? To make myself powerful? To destroy the Syrians? Or to bring God glory? And so, in this situation, we have Joash who is given arrows. And the command is, strike the ground with them. Now, if you were told that, some of you might hit it like that. All right, anything else? This man struck it three times. So it says, and he smote three times and stopped. He stayed. Sort of drew it back and said, anything else? And the man of God was wroth with him. What did he do wrong? I didn't see anything wrong with that. In fact, I was pretty impressed. Seemed to be very obedient. Elisha is wroth. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but three times, and Elisha died, and they buried him. It's over. That's how it ends. How did you strike the ground? In the presence of the mighty prophet, you have been given a commission. Strike the ground. How did you do it? You've been given a commission. Ask, how did you do it? Have you been asking and striking with the bigness of God in mind? Or are you just trying to dot I's, cross T's, like have I done everything right? Shoot an arrow, strike the ground. You should have struck it five or six times. Every single one of us in here, I know, our mentalities are like, how would he know? How would Elisha know to ask big? I say, I wasn't ready even for that, let alone striking the ground with the arrows. I'm totally unfit for the ask. Well, that's why this message is here. I feel that every single one of us is probably unfit for the ask. I think we have diminished our God in our generation unwittingly. In fact, we've inherited a diminished viewpoint where we are not yet ready to ask for the double portion. It sounds rude. It sounds presumptuous. We are not yet ready to strike the ground until Elisha grabs our hand and says, stop. If you say strike, and if this has anything to do with me receiving from what you have, I will not stop striking until you tell me to stop. Are we prepared to go after the bigness of God instead of settling for a small miniature replica of who our God is? We have settled for the matchbox car-sized God instead of the thing that that matchbox car is supposed to just resemble. God is the real thing. And he has the power. I know in our generation, the American church has had a power outage. And no longer do we even oftentimes expect God to be God. And yet, he is God. And though our experience in the church of Jesus Christ may be wanting, it may be flimsy, it may be shortchanged, it's not because God is weak. It's because we are weak and our faith is small. I say, let us humble ourselves before the living God and acknowledge the fact that our asking has not been an Elisha-like asking. Our striking of the ground in obedience to the mighty prophet has not been with the vigor and the expectancy that God is wanting to do something greater in the up-and-coming generations than even he did in Elisha's generation. Are we willing to pick up those same arrows and begin to strike until God literally grabs our arm and says, it is enough. I feel that I am guilty of striking three times. In fact, in certain situations, striking once and saying, I'm just trying to obey scripture. He said, strike the ground. And yet he didn't say strike once any more than when he says pray or ask, he means once. In other words, we are to pray without ceasing. We are to continually when he says, strike the ground with those arrows, let's strike the ground with those arrows. Let's say, my God is bigger. My God is greater. 
God, you do in this generation what only you can do and use me as an instrument to strike and to ask. We are not the ones that can answer, but we are the ones that are fit and prepared in Christ Jesus to do the asking. And that asking is what in scripture is called praying. And that instrument of prayer is what God uses to change the course of history. But God is looking for vessels that will be consecrated to him and be houses of prayer for all nations. That's why he grabs a whip and enters the temple and turns over money changers' tables. He says, this is supposed to be a house of asking. This was supposed to be a house of asking for all nations, not just for your life, for all nations. Are you such a temple? Could you imagine your daily life if you were asking as Elisha asked? And if you were continually striking arrows to the ground on a daily basis, saying, I know my God has everything and all the equipment that is necessary to turn this world on its head. And what if as the church of Jesus Christ, we began to function with that type of an attitude? And what if it took an entire generation before we saw the heavens open? Would it matter? No, because the entire while that we are praying, even if we don't see anything, even one drop of rain in this generation, we know that the God we are asking it of will prove faithful. He cannot lie. So with a full assurance, we begin to strike the ground. God, if you say strike, I will strike. And I will not strike once. I will not strike three times. I will continue to strike until your prophet's arm reaches out and says, it is enough. Thank you, Church of Jesus Christ, for obeying. You see, there is a time, many of you that have prayed through things know when God will reach out and say, it is enough, it is done. We must continue faithful and fervent until we see the heavens open. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.